0: you're listening to Megiddo Radio, Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megidoradio.com. That's megidoradio.com. Welcome everybody, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. This is episode number 509. This will likely be the last program for a few weeks, and... Um, Probably be uploaded up near. When is this going to be uploaded? Probably around the twenty fourth of October. I'm going to be probably posting a few. I think there'll be extra shows having been uploaded by this point. These kind of a lot of these programs are recorded back to back. Anyway, so. Um, I think the next next time to expect another program will be about, let me think, it'll be like the 20, it be about the 20-somethings of November, I think it'll be like um, whatever Tuesday that is, not not the 21st, I think about the 28th of November. Apologies about that, but uh, I'm just going to be, there's going to be uh, quite a bit of traveling and um, I will not. I could bring the computer, I could do a bunch of other things, I just don't want to. So, um, so yeah, so it'll be, end of November be the next time a program will be uploaded. So just to keep, um, just to let you know about that. On today's program, we're going to be dealing with an article that was written by Michael L. Brown. Uh, Michael L. Brown, who is a fairly well-known apologist mainly known for his uh, work as an apologist within the charismatic camp. He's quite well-respected, and uh, I've dealt with him before in the program, but I haven't probably covered him for quite a number of years now, actually. I think it's been quite a while. I think the last program I did on Michael Brown was a review of one of his books which ended up oh yeah playing with holy fire which he he sold the book or the advertised or how to put it promoted the book in such a way that he was going to expose a lot of the 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 people within the charismatic movement and uh it, it was a lot of whitewashing of the charismatic movement and uh, a lot of, ah, it's not that bad and things like that. So, and, but that was about, it's been quite a while. And anyway, he, um, I, every now and again, I look in and I have a look at Charisma Magazine. I, charismanews.com is where this article has come from. He did an article there recently, which I'm going to cover Dated 25th of September. Why do Reformed cessationists quote church history as gospel? Now I'm doing, um, currently I'm doing a study around church history and it kind of caught my attention, especially when he's regarding cessationism and it's something I've done years ago. And so I said, okay, let's have a look at this. Let's have a look at how we can use church history properly. Um, how it's can be helpful, and and how we view that in in regards to scripture and what we're following, and different things like that. Also, how we, uh, and I say we, is in, in terms of Reformed believers, those who view church history, because um, we can have a poor views of church history we can have fairly radical views of church history a bit of a straw man that's kind of presented is that well almost like anything prior to Luther is trash we have to start again and it can be presented like that there's a and there's an element of truth there somewhere isn't there, there is, I mean um, whether you're talking about the, the view of history presented by the likes of John Fox William Tyndale Wycliffe and the Lollards. Generally speaking, the view was history was this. Kind of the golden age, golden era. Things were pretty good until about the 5th century. I can't remember, was a Tyndale dated it to the decline in Christianity to about the 8th century? Or the 7th century, you could with the the rise of Antichrist. But anyway, roughly speaking, the there's a fairly good period to about the fifth century. Then there's decline. Especially with when it comes to the doctrines of grace. Okay, they're not call that at that point, of course, but Augustinianism, whatever you want to call it. And there's about a thousand years up until about the 16th century and until the Protestant Reformation until Martin Luther and John Calvin, until that happens, has been steady decline and it gets worse and worse and worse. But I, we need to also be careful that we do not think that we throw everything in the bin up until that point and you can't learn anything from church history in terms of theology and otherwise. You have to be careful, you have to be discerning, you have to know what you're doing. Um, generally speaking, the reformers, when they came to the Reformation, I'm giving this this bit of background because this will hopefully help us when we look at Michael L. Brown's argument regarding to the charismatic movement. But, but in church history, when you get to the Reformation era. And I'm speaking very generally. I'm sure you're going to find the odd exception to what I'm saying here here and there. But generally speaking, theology proper when it comes to the attributes of God and a lot of things like that, who God is, divine simplicity, the trinity, other things like that, the reformers didn't see a huge didn't see a need to reinvent the wheel. And so a lot of it would be, for want of a better term, lifted from somebody like Thomas Aquinas in theology proper, I'm speaking of, in terms of the being of God. And and really, and, you know, the systematic theologies wouldn't have had huge, huge defenses of these things because the Reformation was really dealing with largely to do with grace and the you had the early church having to you know in the during the days of augustine having to deal with pelagianism pelagianism against august augustinianism and then you get a drift away from augustinianism in the medieval church towards a semi-pelagianism and at times pelagianism the the position really of the Council of Trent we kinda of went with a bit of both and and this is like sixteenth century now. And the Council of Trent was a Roman Catholic counter Reformation move. Met over eighteen years. And during that they, they didn't want to seem to come against Augustine, they couldn't, but they also couldn't side with the the Reformers either, and so they ended up somewhere in the middle. If you look at the first two canons of the Canons of Justification, there's actually nothing wrong with them in the Council of Trent. It's later on, I think it's it's Canon 9, Canon 10, around that, anyway, succession on justification where you have the rejection of faith alone. And other things as well, and and any. This is going to be a a kind of a broad brushing. But the Reformation wasn't seeking to throw everything in the bin and start again from scratch. There was a group that did that. They were called the Radical Reformation. They were called the Radical Reformation. They were Anabaptists. They were Socinians. They were largely heretics. And they would end up in problems with issues such as the Trinity, for example, among others. You know, just just give you the Trinity just as one example. You can see where this is a problem. And I think, and I'm no Calvin scholar, I'm not, uh, but it appears from some lectures that I've listened to and even looking at Calvin that Later Calvin saw the importance of creeds a bit more than early Calvin, but by and large, the reformers see there is a core of truth to be maintained against the likes of the Sassanians of the day, against the likes of the Michael Servetuses of the day, and certain Anabaptists and certain radical reformers who chop the tree down and start again from scratch. And we're heretics. They basically said, well, Rome teaches this, so we're going to do the exact opposite. So we can't have that straw man view of Protestantism. It's not just starting from scratch and rejecting everything in the medieval church or anything like that. It's going with a critical biblical lens, taking the scriptures to bear, and returning to—this is what the Protestant Reformation did—returning to, in grace, the Augustinianism in the 5th century. I think it was B.B. Warfield who said this, that the Reformation—and I'm going to mess up this quote, I know—but was the triumph— of Augustine's view of grace over his view of the church. So, reform was needed, but not in everything. There was decline between the 5th and the 16th century until, praise God, the Lord raised up men to bring about reform within the church. Be that Swingley, be that Heinrich Bullinger, all these men that the Lord raised up during the sixteenth century and indeed in the seventeenth century, the you know John Ox in Scotland, Andrew Melville in Scotland. The, the way that the Lord graciously and wonderfully restored the purity of the gospel during the first and second Reformation,s and often the first Reformation is seen as 16th century, all that, and then you know maybe around 1560 for Scotland, and then second Reformation here probably around I think what 1638 the National Covenant in Scotland, going all the way to I suppose at the end of the Westminster Assembly. So that would be the second Reformation and um, around that. And if there's any professional historians listening to me, forgive me if I have made (laughs) um, some category problems and stuff like that. I do not claim to be a historian. I need to do a lot more work in this area. History is filled with pitfalls and mistakes you can make. And this is kind of where we're kind of looking at this program and where we're looking at this article from Michael Brown. So let's get on to it. So that's by way of introduction, okay? So Michael Brown says this, although it is common for my Calvinist, non-charismatic friends to point to church history in support of their cessationist position, it's really a mistake for them to do so, a big mistake. Church history actually works against them. Um. Right, I have seen. Just this is. Just have to read in the first paragraph. You, you gotta quote the person, or you can just make up whatever you like. I don't know what kind of you, your Calvinist, non-charismatic friends might have the worst arguments on planet Earth. I don't know. I can't refute. Like I'm. When I'm refuting something, I'm not refuting my buddy who said something silly to me uh, two days ago. Because you can't check what they said. I could just make up. Hey, I bumped into this charismatic guy who said um, something ridiculous. Um, that's that's not the way apologetics or polemics in this case should be done. Okay, I'm here critiquing a very very specific argument very specific Michael L. Brown. Another charismatic Mike. Oh, I don't exactly agree with Michael Brown on this, so I'm just critiquing Michael Brown. Not a big fan of this, and I, I... Church history actually works again. Church history doesn't really prove anything. It just really shows the... Especially if you do historical theology. Yeah, two classic works, Lewis burkoff Lewis burkoff did a book, what's it called again, The History of Christian Doctrines, and also there is a, probably maybe the best thing that's ever been written on historical theology, William Cunningham, historical theology, it's a two-volume set, I've read 90% of it, I've still got to finish <laughs> reading through volume two, but it, it is excellent, it's not heavy reading, and historical theology, for those who may, maybe don't know, it's, you're kind of like, When you deal with history, you can deal with the 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 figures. There's the the people. There's the the individuals. The 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 dates. The central figures. But you can also deal with history from the point of view, especially when you're dealing with church history, doctrines, the development of doctrines. You know, what did the early church think about? justification and how did you know how did that develop through the medieval church and it's quite a difficult discipline if you ask me and um i think a modern example and I've yet to go through it so i can't say it's good or bad but everybody raves about it is um post reformation dogmatics which is a four volume set with richard muller put out there which is very very hard to get so historical theology uh, there's not been many of them written over the years and you can kind of see why there's, if you've ever read Systematic Theology by Charles Hodge, that almost at times reads a little bit like a historical theology, in my opinion. So you're just dealing with a lot of history in terms of the development of the doctrine. And there's, yeah, there's probably other Systematic... I think maybe at, the, at one point, Systematic Theology is kind of maybe dealt with it at times. And anyway... History doesn't really prove anything. One thing I will say is this. I have a general principle. of The church generally gets a doctrine right. Over the last 2,000 years. If you go over the last 2,000 years. You're going to find pockets of history where they're weak on. Name the doctrine. It doesn't matter what doctrine you're talking about the church will waver on it I'll give you one example of where you might not think that there's much in church history in regards to support of for example exclusive psalmy singing the psalms only and singing them a cappella without musical instrumentation hundreds of years i don't know how long when when did the first instrument come into the church you can go as far forward as Thomas Aquinas, who, said, who, who basically argued that adding instruments into the church was Judaizing the church. This is quite late. This is, what, 13th century. So instruments weren't really common. From what I can see, even much of the medieval era either. Are there exceptions? I'm sure there are. So much of church history, especially the Reform Movement, no instruments, and the only instruments really have come into worship in the last 200 years. Now, that doesn't really prove anything by itself. It's just that's interesting, <laughs> okay? Are they all wrong? Well, maybe, probably not, and so we're going to look at that a bit more seriously. Seriously, that's all you can really take from it. Um, infant baptism. Uh, I don't know, you know. Most of the church history the last 2,000 years have believed in infant baptism have they had various different ways of explaining covenant theology yeah sure you know there's been various ways here and there but there's a but there's a a thread that's connected them all over the last 2000 years again you're going to see wavering again you're going to see abuse of a genuine good doctrine sure you see drifts at times towards baptismal regeneration not good of course but at the end of the day, generally speaking, over the period of time, over that period of time, the church generally gets it right. This is just my own somewhat of a—I hasten to call it a law. But So church history, historical theology, can be very, very helpful, because what you're doing is— you're not getting infallible people around you. It's almost like getting all the dead guys around you, and you're all getting into a room and you're reading all the, and maybe they're wrong sometimes, but if you're the only person who has that particular view, and all, and you go into Jonathan Edwards and you go into, uh, name name a Puritan, Goodwin and Thomas Goodwin and John Flavel, and then you go back to other eras. You got Thomas Aquinas, you got Bonaventure, you've got before him. um, I'm trying to think, Anselm, and then Augustine, and they all have this particular view, whatever that view is. And you're on the opposite side of it. Perhaps, (laughs) perhaps, might I suggest you maybe re-examine your doctrine, because at the end of the day, if anybody's, no one that I know of who's a Protestant in any sound way, will say, hey, church history is my authority. Because that's Rome—that's somewhat Roman Catholic, isn't it? So this is, I'm just saying from the very get-go, this is a complete straw man from the very, very beginning. He says that they point to church history in support of their, their cessationist position. Well, they're really pointing out that, from what I can see, and I, I just have to go with what, what he's saying here, because there's nothing quoted, nothing really given, substantiate what he's saying. That for the last 2,000 years, the church has denounced and rejected Montanism in the early church. Can you find some people who are otherwise good theologians who are Montanists? Yeah. Uh, Tertullian. I don't think anybody's denying this. Uh, there was a book written in the '80s by Victor Budgen, published by Evangelical Press. I don't know if it's easy to get anymore. It's called Charismatics and the Word of God, and he he kind of brings out this out. And um, you're gonna—it doesn't matter who you get in the first six centuries. Some of the guys who they 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 write brilliant things, and then all of a sudden. They drift into some, what we would classify as something really heterodox or something really dodgy. You have to realize in the early church, they didn't have the internet. (laughs) Okay, I don't want to be funny or anything. We would drift into so many errors if we didn't have access to things. And we have so much access to things and we've got the creeds and confessions if we'll actually use them. So, in what ways is it to support? And a big, church actually works against them. Church history, how? Because Montanism was condemned. It, it just was. That's a historical fact. He never brings that up in his article. And uh, the Zwickau prophets were condemned by the, Luther, Melanchthon was a bit, you know, was kind of, his head was turned a little bit, but yeah, it's going to happen. You're not going to get, we are but creatures of the dust. We're not going to respond perfectly and you're going to find variations and I'm sure sh- he's going to find them. Of course, there's been books written, the document, the fairly consistent view that the apostolic gifts, signs, miracles and wonders have ended with the death of the last apostle, that this 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 is this period is over. These are not normative or anything else like that. I think at the end of John MacArthur's book, Strange Fire, there's an appendix with this in it. And I'm trying to think of another book that may have an appendix in there. Charismatic Chaos years ago might have had it. I don't think Walter Chantry's book, um, Signs of the Apostles, has it. Walter Chantry's book is a good book to read, by the way. Um, people have documented this, and uh, it's been done to death. So I, I think that's what people, what he's referring to. They're pointing towards all these people. John Owen or whoever else you're talking, they say the same thing. That, and by the way, you're going to find the odd reformed guy sound pretty decent. We'll have the odd uh, interesting story <laughs> that might sound a little bit charismatic today. So, no, no one is... Re- Maybe some people are claiming, but nobody's really claiming you're going to get a uniformity position. And nobody really should be using history as an authority in and of itself. History can be badly used by all sorts of people. Okay. So I think hopefully that will be somewhat helpful. Sorry, we're going to get back to Michael L. Brown's paragraph two. Of his article. The first reason is the most obvious. So he says, church history works against him. He's saying that church history actually supports continuationism. The first reason is most obvious. Reformed cessationists, like me, are in the Protestant rather than the Catholic camp of the church. I would take issue with that... um, The problem is how we've been defining Protestant for a couple of hundred years. And uh, I would not classify Pentecostalism as part of Protestant or Catholic. I would see it more as part of the radical. It's got more to do with Anabaptist and at times, Socinian t- tendencies. One is Pentecostalism. Hello, have they? Has, has the movement ever dealt with the heresies within its camp? It's really got more to do. The movement's got way more to do with. Um, it Doesn't have much to do with the Protestant movement at all. It doesn't have much to do with creeds. It doesn't have much to do with confessions. Uh, it may at times coincide with it, but it's it's really a drift, and it's so we don't, you know it. It doesn't agree with Catholic either. I'm not saying it's Catholic. Uh, So. So, off the bat, you're kind of on, on a losing... On a losing side... Unless you want to do what the Roman Catholic Church does, which it does with, it. okay, you're not a Catholic, so therefore you're definitely Protestant. So then they will say, okay, you've got 33,000 denominations out there. This is actually a claim that's made by Catholic apologists that's actually been disproven by Roman Catholics themselves, actually. I think the I think it was the Catholic Register. I can't remember the name of the newspaper, but it's been debunked by Roman Catholics themselves, and it's, it's pretty easy to look into but they include, in order to inflate this number of Protestant denominations out there, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, how do you define who's Protestant and who's not? Well, I I would say in order to be properly Protestant in a, in a meaningful sense, creedal, um, Augustinian. I think you would, you know, yes, the reform movement, I think you'd probably include more historic forms of Anglicanism. Those that believe the Pope is the Antichrist, you would have to be creedal. A lot of Protestantism today, quote-unquote, is not protesting anything. It's, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to define what, what it means to be Protestant. It's like, you know... We're in the same site eh, I don't think so okay continuing on with his article that means that we believe that in some very fundamental ways much of the church lost its way through history because of what a massive because of which a massive reformation was needed yeah but you're kind of it depends and to be honest I wouldn't go with modern reform people and what they think about history at all um, there's a there's a very good book by James Dolazo called "All That Is in God," and he has shown and demonstrated in that book, an excellent book. A lot of Calvinists today are very poor on impassibility, and there's a lot of examples, sad examples around the place that are even well known um so we've i don't i if you're going to look for protestant and reformed I, I we're in need of a reformation within the reform movement today and it's in theology proper so just uh it depends what you mean by, re, by a massive reformation you have to define that, because not, I think it was, uh, was it Vermilly? He was a Reformed Thomist, so was uh, John Owen. And Thomism, I mean referring to Thomas Aquinas. In theology proper, not necessarily in his views and other things outside of that. Says says, um, continue on to say, many Reformed Christians even argue that Roman Catholics are not Christians at all. Uh, yeah, meaning that roughly half of all professing Christians today are de facto disqualified. Yeah, today, but... Uh, I mean... the The Roman Catholic Church, as we know it today took a long time to get there and it's really i mean it was corrupt during the the medieval era but it's really only cut off from the visible church at trent the marian doctrine and only what was it came in officially in the 1850s yeah some horrible blasphemous things were said about the pope that he's god manifest in the flesh at certain points in 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 church history and some idolatrous views of the papacy can, well, he is the man of sin son of perdition and um, yeah we would what do you mean even uh, I don't know what the point he's making Um, but we're not saying that church history of like if you go to the year I don't know pick a year the year 1000 1000 years ago and it's the year, I don't know, what it's 2023 now, and you go back to the year 1023. Just picking a number off, Tom Ed, the The Roman Catholic Church did not exist back then, as we know today. And in the church Catholic, small C, big C, depending on how you look at it, there would have been, yeah, Christians. Church was very corrupt. There was a lot of darkness around, but there would have been Christians. Yes, there was corruption within the church. Also Christians outside of the church, I believe, and uh, you know, you would get groups like the Waldensians. Not everybody was under the foot of the suppression of the papacy at that point. I think the dio- Diocese of Milan was kind of separate, and then you get the-, the Albigensians in the south of France, and the Waldensians in the north of Italy, and um... church history is not so simple. My friend, church history is not so simple just just to cherry pick little things and then connect them together and they don't really connect together at all. And he says, on what basis then does a reformed cessationist appear to church history when so much of that history is rejected from the outset? Just because Roman Catholicism of today is the way it is. Doesn't mean that we would view, nor should you view, for example, Erasmus prior to Trent in exactly the same way. You know, you've got a bit of a question mark. You're wondering about, say, Desiderius Erasmus prior to Trent. And, you know, because the the the, the division between the churches isn't as clear. You could say go back even further to the time of the Lollards the Lollards really come from within in the outer it's a really a, a well it's kind of a preaching movement isn't it really within the Catholic church and Wycliffe takes the the Latin Vulgate translates it into English in 18, well, 13, no, 1382 when that i think it was handwritten anyway so who how how what's mm, no that's not how we view history that's not how it was viewed historically and that's a very that's a poor straw man how no we don't reject it out ice at least we didn't i mean maybe in the last 40 50 years um with more kind of radical ideas maybe towards history being chopped up but no you shouldn't do that and for example there are there are a lot of things that we can learn about divine simplicity, part of our Reformed Confession, which we can learn from, for example, Thomas Aquinas. There's things you can learn from Anselm, the, was it the 11th century. There's things John of Damascus. Wasn't he more Eastern, I think? Even though he wouldn't be a big fan of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So... No. Do you listen to them on everything? No. Um one of the Cappadocian fathers. And uh, they were very good for defending the two natures of Christ, but one person they dealt with, I think it was Apollinarianism and Nestorianism. But I think it was Gregory of Nazianzus or Gregory of Nyssa. Oh, One of them, anyway, was known for drifting into kind of a universalist heresy. These issues were, you know, they were very good in certain areas all across the board. And then some of them, one or two of them, just drifted into weird speculation. That's just church history. It's not as clean and as squeaky clean as we'd like it. See, history doesn't really tell us anything. It's basically... you. Oh, I'm sorry, but this frustrates me. You will find the true doctrine all the way throughout church history, but you're not going to find universal the, the same opinion by everybody. So we don't reject. What do we reject? Okay, we, we may we may have a bunch of skepticism by somebody who claims they had some weird vision in some, you know, some of these Catholic, you know, mystics or whatever during the Middle Ages. We may say, hmm, maybe the stuff that happened to Ignatius, Ign- Ignatius being chased around by, what was it? uh, Was it him chasing around the devil by the stick? Maybe we're going to be a bit skeptical about that. Hmm, And, you take it on a case by case basis. You don't chop everything out. That's just who does that? Um, like a Brown. I mean, if somebody actually says this, quote them. <laughs> quote them. This is ridiculous. Um, yeah. If the argument that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, which were normative in the New Testament times, and they weren't even. They weren't normative in New Testament times. They occurred at New Testament times. They were never normative. There were miraculous signs and wonders. By definition, they're not normative. They were there in an operation among some, not every Tom, Dick, and Harry either. Gradually disappeared from church history. Why do these cessationists? What do these cessationists do with Roman Catholic miracles through the centuries? Um, Define Roman Catholic. I don't really understand. Are you saying that we just accept every single claim, no matter how wild? If my favorite theologian started saying that he was hearing a voice out of the sky... Even if it was a very sound guy, do I just say, Oh well, he must be right. Should we I, I, I don't I I don't see the logic in this. They must reject them as counterfeits or frauds. Yeah, the most of them yeah, they were. I mean, most they were. Um, and as a result, they appeal to church history while rejecting large portions of history to violate the narrative. Um, yeah, everybody's got a filter. If you believe everything you hear, regardless of the source, I heard in a kind of an analogy, what history is like, It's well as like at the bottom of a waterfall and you've got a bucket and you're just catching whatever you can catch. We have, yeah, it, it, if if you hear, yeah, of course, because it's not lining up with the theology. Our theology comes first. We, When you examine history, you're examining it Theologically, especially church history, I, I don't understand what, what his problem is with this. It's quite a double standard. How? Unless you're you're accusing cessationists of being Roman Catholic with their view of tradition. We don't do that. And if you do, we should be rebuked. There's been books written and how does various different views... In the early church, uh, the, the, the the letter written at the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin when he writes to, oh, I remember the, I'm trying to remember the King of France's name at the time, but he kind of, and Calvin knew his early church fathers, but he also cautioned against just following them willy-nilly to, you know, to use them as authority because they had various different views at times. But he also didn't mind when Augustine was right on something, or whatever else it was, to show and quote him when he was right. But he also didn't mind, at times, quoting Augustine when he's wrong. So this this is just... You have to explain the double standard. Do we listen to departures from the... Yeah. Are we supposed to accept it? I mean, you're looking for, I think when you appeal to church history, you're just going, I'm sorry, but you're on the side. Look, if you go to our church history, looking for friends who are continuationists, generally speaking, now I'm quoting somebody and I can't remember the guy's name. It was a guy it was a sermon I listened to years ago on sermon audio. Um oh can yeah. Anyway, but you're gonna largely find heretics. If you go looking for friends, Montanus, Zwickau prophets, and Roman look, these things have been dealt with. Um counterfeit miracles, a, a series of lectures that was that's I think it was the lectures done up wasn't I think it was done in 1918 by B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield looks into this. And there's only one place I, from what I remember, radically disagree with him on, uh, which is his rejection of the end of Mark 16, which is a pity, but um, otherwise it's a good book. And yeah, let's get back to this. And uh, on a what basis... Can a reform cessationist, we should just drop the word reform cessationist. If you're reformed, you are a cessationist. I'm not saying that if you're reformed, you don't believe that God does anything miraculous. God heals people, but he doesn't use apostles to do it. You know, if you're, if you're dear, you know, if you you've got a dear loved one in hospital and they're told they have 0% chance of living and you pray. And the Lord heals that person miraculously. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. That's a different thing to the signs, miracles, and wonders. Verifiable ones of the apostolic era. I think people kind of miss miss that up sometimes. You do pray because we have a God who is all-powerful. And is not limited by anything else. But we don't have the signs, miracles, and wonders which authenticate the word of God anymore. There's a difference there. On what basis, Brown writes, can a reformed cessationist argue against God restoring something that was lost in light of the whole promise of the Reformation? Yeah, the Reformation was about the doctrines of grace. Just You can't just make it up you can't just say, hey, you know, God's restoring, I don't know, the angel view of G- Genesis 6. I mean, it gets a bit ridiculous. What, are you going to just grab any doctrine? The, the Reformation was primarily about restoring the gospel. Okay. It says Pentecostals and Charismatics believe that even though, no, nah, we have a very different view way of looking at things, but I, I've dealt with that earlier even though there was definitely a, a decrease in the use of the miraculous gifts in certain points in church history, and there's no doubt that they have been powerfully restored in the last 150 years. No doubt. Um, I would question that massively, and I would question a couple of different things, as in what is described in the New Testament is not what is seen in the so-called Brownsville Revival, which Michael Brown is part of, and other things like that. These one example of this is you do not see the supernatural gift of tongues anymore. You don't see it anywhere. You see gibberish called a heavenly language. Misunderstanding. First Corinthians chapter chapter thirteen, verses one to three. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love. Okay? Point of that is it's a hypothetical position. It's it's a hypo. They're all hypothetical statements. The first three uh, verses in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, and saying, if I could do all these things but don't have love, I have nothing. He's not saying that he actually um, that gives his good to feed the poor. Read it. Read it. One to thirteen. He's not saying. He speaks with the tongues of angels. He's using hyperbole. And if you look through First uh, Corinthians chapter fourteen, the use of tongues is is to facilitate prophesying for the edification of the church. If the church doesn't understand, it doesn't edify. First Corinthians fourteen also points that out. So, on multiple accounts, it doesn't describe. Even if you want to say oh, it's still possible, where is it? Uh, it's nowhere. And then when you want want proof of it, I saw a video a couple of years ago, Craig Keener talking about, I think it was Craig Keener, um, just talking about, um, I think it was somebody in the middle of Congo. Apparently they were dead for a couple of days and they carried them over and they got revived at the hospital. Proof? Eh. Just, that's an account from some lady. And this is all, that this is proof apparently and there's no doubt about it. None. Of course not. If, if if there's anything supernatural going on in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, apart from psychological suggestions and other things like that, some of it is not a million miles away from what goes on in Indian ashrams. Very strange. I'm not saying that's what happens all the time, but not according to the description given in the scripture. If you want more in this, I mean, the movie's imperfect and, you know, it's been a long time since I put this movie out, but of Chaos and Confusion, the Modern Church, I put it out in 2012. A few er- There's a few things I would disagree in here and there that are, you know, my views have moved on since then. But, and even one or two of the points of exegesis, I wouldn't necessarily argue anymore, but you can watch that if you have any questions about it. It's for free. You can watch it on YouTube. And you can find it on the YouTube channel. And you can just type in Reverend R.E.V. Paul Flynn. And, uh,. Or type in "of chaos and confusion the modern church." Again, I don't. I don't do movies anymore. I uh, don't have the time. But his final authority is his own opinion. No doubt, no doubt that they have been powerfully restored. It's just because it's, you know, he believes it. Um, Brown goes on to write. Yet it is the very essence of Protestantism to argue. In much larger ways, things that were part of the early church were subsequently lost to history. Not everything, that's my own comment, uh, only to be recovered by Luther and other reformers. Mm -mm. To be recovered. Look, if you're going to bring Luther into it, the Reformation, but, and there was another Reformation in Scotland, the second Reformation. But I digress. If you're going to bring Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, in, what what do they all have in common? What did they reform? The doctrine of grace, and they brought it back to Augustinianism. Look at bondage of the will. Martin Luther's response to Desiderius Erasmus's um, "Freedom of the Will," I think it was called. That's what they had in common. Luther, Luther's reforms only went so far. I mean, yeah. You know, praise God, he discovered the just to live by faith, and and a lot of his writings really blessed the church. And the Reformation, and any Reformation, is to bring back the church to its original purity. The reform, like the Lutheran movement, went in one direction because it didn't really—not saying it didn't wish to reform. Worship, but it had a different view of worship. The normative principle of worship, which believes that only that which is condemned is, you know, is condemned. So, if it's not condemned in Scripture, you can do it in worship. That that'd be the very, very simplistic explanation of the normative principle that would be held to by the Anglican Church and the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Church. Which you know, the, you know, the Reformation developed writings of Calvin, Knox, others. Second Reformation period as well. Period of Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, George Gillespie in Scotland. Believed in the regular, the regulative principle of worship, and. Largely developed by, you know, the Puritans and then William Perkins. And it was not lost, I think it would be, but the whole point of it was not just that it lost and like just disappeared. It was about re- restoring the church to its original purity. Not about starting from scratch, but restoring it, returning it to its original purity. Um, He quotes here then as this is brown again as british theologian andrew wilson rightly noted i've never heard of andrew wilson before so i don't know if he's solid or not this sort of argument that since something gradually disappeared from the church over the course of the first two two or three centuries it must therefore be invalid uh, should strike any for any five sola protestant as providing several hostages to fortune that's a, that's patent nonsense um Seriously, I, I don't know who he is, but um, no one's arguing because it disappeared after the first two or three centuries. Um, we're basically arguing cessationists generally argue that it was after. I believe, I'm not saying everybody holds the same position as I me. Mean, the tongues went with seventy A.D. destruction of Jerusalem because had a one of the functions of tongues among many was it was a, a sign of judgment. You know when there were. Isaiah 28 when they were in a foreign land and they heard tongues and this was a sign of judgment. Um, Babel in Genesis 11. Tongues, confusion. So part of that, yes, it was, I I, I think I I agree with Gustin as well when he talks about Acts chapter 2 that this is a sign that the gospel was to go forth everywhere. There's a certain degree of that. But also... I think in Jerusalem, various different things. There were warning signs, and within a generation, you have the destruction of Jerusalem. So I, that's when I think the tongues petered out of their own accord. Then other ones, other signs, miracles, and wonders also ended as well. Before, okay, you had John on the island of Patmos recorded, ninety five A D. Uh, but that's kind of when that all ends. Closing of the canon of scripture. That's, yeah. And I don't think that a council got together in 150 AD and said, you know what, we're going to have this movement called the charismatic movement that's going to be, and we're going to think about miracles and when they ended and all this, and I have a well-fleshed out doctrine of that. No, that didn't quite happen for a while. And so it was a bit back and forth. I'm realistic enough to realize that, no, that's not the way doctrines often develop in anything. And things get more, it's usually when challenges to certain things happen that you realize, oh, well, yeah, what do we actually hold to on this? And back and forth, it's not that the view is not there. And you're going to find early church fathers who um, would have said, no doubt. I'd be surprised if he didn't. He'd probably get various different views and stuff like that, that st- things are still going on. Um, I, I'm not aware of anybody makes that argument. Th- Sola Scriptura. Are you saying that Sola Scriptura disappeared after the first two or three centuries? It's not very clear what he's saying here. I, I, I hope not. Sola Scriptura... Basically, see they're into the Middle Ages. Now, is there inconsistencies with how it's used? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But anybody reject Sola Scriptura? Probably not properly into Trent. I'm not saying that there's nothing, nobody before Trent in the 16th century, but, you know, a lot of good theologians up to at least Aquinas, are, they're getting their theology from Scripture. The book of Scripture, well, and the book of Nature, but there's nothing anti scriptural about that. Um, I mean, Sola Christos? I'm just reading through a book here, Cyril of Ale- Alexandria. He's um, three Christological treatises. And uh, you saying that Cyril of Alexandria doesn't believe in Sola Christos? <laughs> It's just like, what are you talking about? Okay? Yeah, there were, I think there were certain problems with sola gratia, you know, and the, and the inconsistencies with that, and the, the sacramental system that developed during the medieval church, which infringed and corrupted that pure stream of the gospel. Sure. Yeah. But to uh, say that it's on the same level as this, that, what, the strike any... Five solar Protestant as providing hostages to fortune. What? Um Yeah, there's a decline. Protestants historically would say there's a decline from fifth, maybe starting in the eighth century, a decline. But it's not bought. Church history is not our authority. And if it's your authority, you're not a Protestant. Okay. Uh, you've kind of gone to, well, Rome has three-legged stool when it comes to authority. And, you know, you got the magisterium, you got church counselor, or church, Um, sorry, the magisterium, which is the church. You have sacred scripture and tradition. So I, 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 I'm not exactly sure what the point Andrew Wilson's trying to get at, or what Brown is trying to get at, because the Solas didn't disappear. They did not disappear in the first two or three centuries. So if you want to make that like okay, say let's just say it did peter out in the first two or three centuries. Just say it happened. I think that might have. I think I might have seen that with an Anglican I once wrote, read. Anyway, but just say it did happen. But you're not saying that people stopped believing in Christ alone. I mean, Augustine certainly believed in Christ alone, didn't he? Yeah, okay. Chrysostom, didn't he believe in Christ alone? Yeah. Uh, Gregory Nyssa? Yeah. J- John of Damascus? Wasn't he in the 8th century? You may find d- inconsistencies with their views, I'm sure, but they still believe in Christ alone. And that's just one of the alones. Because you have to say, if you're going to say that the gospel was just completely extinguished in the first two or three centuries, who, what Protestant, what, what, what Protestant would think that? Um, the gospel was there as a flicker still to a degree, I believe in the, in the Catholic small, um, Suppose big C, small C, probably better both. In the mainline church. I'll call it the mainline church. And they got worse and worse until about Luther. It was really, really bad at that point. But you had the bright, shining lights, that are the precursors to the Reformation, the likes of the Lollards, the Hussites, the Waldensians, the Albigensians. So you might say, why am I going through all this? This is friends. We have to use history in the right way. You can't just like pick any little thing. Pick A is true. B is true. Therefore the connectors. No, and this is just poor. No mention of the Montanists, but. Eh. And then he goes over to a. He says, as one popular website states, the Reformation slogan Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformandum. Re- Re- Reformand. I think it's missing something there. The, the, the church reformed, always being reformed. Meant to be sure that our hearts, lives, and practices are being reformed by the Word of God. Yeah, we're not finished progress. We're not finished um, product, really. That's what we have been calling for for, for decades. So let's continue to reform our practice beliefs in what is written in the Word of God. Yeah, but everybody says that, even sometimes heretics like anti-Trinitarians will jump onto that as well. And there's one is Pentecostals. That's part of the Pentecostal movement as well. And yeah. A second reason why church history works against reform cessationists is that there this is brown writing is a clear testimony that the miraculous gifts of the spirit did not cease with the death of the apostles so again like i said i wouldn't be i would be surprised if you didn't find a few early church fathers in the 2nd century or a little bit later who would think that the apostolic gifts continue um, there's certainly plenty if you look at Chrysostom, he says one of the he said when he's he's quoting and he's looking at First Corinthians chapter fourteen. I think it's First Corinthians chapter fourteen, and he's basically saying this whole place is very obscure. One of the reasons this it's so obscure, and I'm paraphrasing, is because this this hasn't happened for hundreds of years. No, you're going to find other people probably say other things. He's got a couple of quotations here one from Justin Martyr from Dialogue of Trifo and he doesn't give um it doesn't give a reference the the, the dialogue with trifo trifo it, it's quite long and so it says for the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time yeah but well, could you give me a reference and so i can look it up see if you're not taking out of context apparently uh Irenaeus of Lyon Against heresies in 180 said, for some, do you certainly and truly drive out devils? Um, see, I don't know if he's just, that could possibly just be true preaching. I don't know. So that the, those who have been cleansed from evil spirits frequently doth believe and join themselves to the church. Um, yeah, okay. So it wouldn't surprise me very much. And actually, I think this has been brought up by books anyway, written at various times. I might be mistaken. I might be mistaken. But there is a book. I think it was William Goode wrote it. It was written 200 years ago. This is long before the charismatic movement. And it was writing about the Irvingite movement, which is a kind of a pre-Pentecostal, Pentecostal Pentecostal movement. Also denounced as heretical and strange. And that was, um, there's always been these movements in the background. The church has just always responded in the same way and rejected these claims. Um, that's probably what they mean by church history. you know. But I think in that book, there is an acknowledgement that some of your early church fathers did kind of hold to this, but I think it was probably Montanism that ended that. So a Montanism, probably the most famous Montanist was Tertull- Tertullian. Yeah, Tertullian was great in places, but, you know, and uh, and you find far stranger views in other church fathers, by the way. So you could, you, look, if you name the view, name a heresy, you can find it in an early church father. You'll probably find it in an origin somewhere. <laughs> you're, you know, if you if you want to find something, you're going to find it in the early church. Let's be honest. Um, But you're looking for a consensus where it does exist when you are looking at early church history. Right. Um, And there's certainly plenty of again, there's been quotations amassed I think John MacArthur at the end of strange fire should have brought it over with me has a lot of quotations at the back of that book to. Um, and he points out as well, that Austin changed his view. I don't. I don't. A lot of this doesn't really prove one way or the other. And then at the end, he just says, "Well, look. Reformed, reformed people will study historical theology and the development of doctrines, and they will look at things and they are sh- they, they should. it's not an authority, but helpful guardrails so you don't go.'" beyond the pale we're not the first the reason reformed people look at church history is they realize that they're not the first people to come to a passage and they're going to see what other people looked at in the past and and then you're going to look at a doctor and say you know what all these great men godly men all had the same view they all denounced montanism irvingism in scotland in the 19th century they didn't look favorably on the Zwickau prophets or other forms of strange phenomena B.B. Warfield didn't think highly of the so-called Roman Catholic miracles you get the point this is kind of what we do but it's not our final authority that the scripture alone it's been Paul Flynn see you in about a month's time